Hi everyone, it's Melissa Pemberton here, host of Mending Families, where we will talk all things parenting, trauma, and healing. On today's episode, co-host of the Adoption Connection podcast, Melissa Corkum, is here to chat with me about the Enneagram, polyvagal theory, safe and sound protocol, and so much more. You'll want to hang out till the very end. She has some really great thoughts from her perspective as an adoptee that you don't want to miss. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Melissa Corkum. Okay, well, welcome to Mending Families. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited to have you. I actually have been listening to your podcast, The Adoption Connection, since day one. So all we really appreciate. That's pretty yeah. impressive because there's over 200 episodes. So yeah, well, I well mean, <laughs> I I can't remember. I feel like that somehow I knew about you guys before the podcast. And so then when I heard that you were doing a podcast, I was, you know, I was jumping on board right away. So well, we really appreciate it. So, yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you put a podcast out into the world, you, I mean, there's ways to look at analytics and all of those things, right? But it's so one-sided and yeah. then you kind of just like hope and pray that people will listen. Well, if you could just start out by introducing yourself to us, that would be great. Sure. So my name is Melissa Corkum and I am a wife. Uh, my husband Patrick and I have been married for a little over 20 years. We live in Maryland. We have six kids, four through adoption, two by birth. Uh, I'm an author, speaker, coach, uh, just released a book called Reclaim Compassion. It's on overcoming blocked care. Um, and a big part of what we do when we coach folks is um, use the SSP, uh, the mm -hmm. Safe and Sound Protocol. So I'm also a practitioner in that. Okay. I feel like you do everything. <laughs> like, well, I'm trying not to these days, yeah. honestly, but it's hard to, I'm excited by new things. And so mm -hmm. I've kind of picked up a lot along the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I just was reading through your bio and I'm like, oh my gosh, what does she not do? Um, so yeah, you just wear a lot of hats. Well, I, I don't do licensed therapy is what I don't do. <laughs> oh, perfect. I love that. You found something you don't do. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So I actually am so interested in the Enneagram. I am, I am a six with a wing seven. That's what I think I am, but I love that you are an Enneagram coach. And I was just hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about how you became an Enneagram coach. Like what was it that started that passion for you? And then also how do you use it in your everyday life? Yeah. Well, for those who don't know, the Enneagram is it's a personal growth system is really mm -hmm. what it is. A lot of people probably may know it more like a personality assessment or a test. It's really so much more than that. Mm -hmm. It goes back really thousands of years. There's uh, like even Odysseus, uh, mm -hmm. the nine lands that he visited on his big odyssey kind of correlate to nine ways to see the world. Oh, interesting. I know. So fascinating. And yeah it's not an assessment, right? So we've, mm -hmm. there are assessments, mm -hmm. but it's really a way, a framework to examine ourselves, kind of get curious about mm -hmm. why we do what we do. And I think that's what sets it most apart from other kind of personality type things is right. instead of looking or putting us in a box or labeling us, it gives us kind of this roadmap to be curious about our motivations and then 
through that, it gives us very gently a way to be better versions of ourselves, be more yeah. integrated. Um, so I just love it for all of those things. It's been really important in both my personal journey, uh, in our coaching journey, in my spiritual journey. Mm. And it's simple in some ways, right? It mm -hmm. it shows nine core motivations of kind of like lenses that people see the world, nine perspectives that people are taking in information. So nine doesn't feel like a huge number. Right. And yet there's all these layers and depth. Yeah. So you can go really shallow with it. And I find that it's less helpful that way. And then mm -hmm. you can go really, really deep and it guides us. I think, you know, it's, we all know we're different. Like, yeah. it's easy to say, like, everyone sees everything differently. And, mm -hmm. and yet, I think before the Enneagram, I thought, yes, we're all different. And surely there's this one common thing, you know, respect is common through everything, mm -hmm. or we all see relationships as so we all prioritize this one thing. And then like how we do it might be different. But the Enneagram really blows all of that out of the water like there's so mm. many ways to see the world and, and mm -hmm. it's given me so much compassion both for myself that there's other people out there like me who kind of see the world like i do yeah and compassion when i bump into like a relationship snafu with my husband or one of my kids right. or a friend or a co-worker and instead of thinking like oh my gosh why can't she see it this way it's so mm -hmm. obvious i can think oh i wonder if they're seeing it from this perspective. It just, it's just, it's giving me words for all the different quirks that we all have. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you use the Enneagram in your professional life? So one of the things I think that's been really tricky because primarily I work with exhausted and discouraged yeah. parents yeah. is that unless they know the Enneagram, mm -hmm. they don't have a ton of energy to think, oh, I'm going to do this like deep mm -hmm. new personal discovery journey for myself. Right. And so for folks who know it, we've been able to help them frame it around their experience of parenting and adoption. Mm -hmm. And that's been really helpful. And also to give them questions, even though it's not proper Enneagram etiquette to type yeah. other people, especially kids. Yeah. It's yeah. been helpful to say like, hey, have you ever thought that perhaps they're looking at the world this way. And so I think one of the things that I've really focused in on in the last couple of years is how can I take what the Enneagram has taught me and bring it into the coaching environment with language that is familiar and not Enneagram specific so mm -hmm. that we're using the wisdom of the Enneagram in a way that doesn't require someone to know their type or know the Enneagram okay. or even sure. know that we're using Enneagram wisdom. Sure. Yeah. And not that we're trying to like trick people or anything, but just offer it in a way that's really accessible without them having to learn something new. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Well, so talking about exhausted adoptive parents, I know that um, you, your, your book, did it come out today? So yes, more or less. Okay. It is available to the broad public today, March 6th. It's so okay. whenever people are hearing this, it will be for sure Already available out. on yeah. Amazon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we are working on getting it distributed in some other channels. So okay. but for sure, Amazon. Yeah. So I ordered mine today and I was like, what did this just release today? Cause I've been watching and all of a sudden it like popped up as available. So I'm excited about that, but 
coming back to, I know your book is about like compassion fatigue and blocked care. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So the, the full subtitle is the adoptive parents guide to overcoming blocked care with neuroscience and faith. Okay. <laughs> there there you the go. All the keywords. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think that I'm curious about that. Like, how did you get started in, um, your journey of wanting to understand blocked care and compassion fi- fatigue. And then also like, how do we recognize that in ourselves as adoptive or foster or moms of hard kids? Yeah. So I think it started in my own journey that I had blocked care and I didn't have words for it. And okay. so, you know, four of our kids came up to us through adoption and three of them came to us as older kids and it wasn't even just the older three it was like every time we brought a new kid into the house and it rocked my paradigm of the world Mm -hmm. of how i thought successful parenting looked like all of those things um i got to a place multiple times with my kids where either one i didn't like them Mm -hmm. or two i just felt like i wanted to give up and Mm -hmm. and we identify 10 signs of block care in the book that people can take kind of like a mini assessment and kind of self-assess where you know what are all the actual signs and but so i co-wrote the book with lisa qualls who Mm -hmm. also co-wrote a book with dr purvis yeah um and we had both had experience neither of us had the words and she had posted on her blog a decade ago Mm -hmm. um she used to do these Tuesday topics when it was kind of back in a season where there were less Facebook groups and more bloggers and people were comment, like there was a lot of community that was happening on the blogs. And so she would take like a question every week and kind of post it and let people discuss it. And so one of the questions was like, basically what if I don't like my kid? What if Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm just surviving until they're 18? Mm -hmm. Um, Which we laugh about now because we both have adult kids. And let me tell you, parenting, unfortunately, (laughs) I guess in some cases, this does not end at 18. Like we're all like, let's get to 18. I'm I like, know, right? Friends, no, nothing no, no. happens at 18. And so, so many people resonated with this. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that someone else feels this way. I thought that I was mm-hmm. the only one. So we knew that it was a thing. And I was reading Brain-Based Parenting by oh, yeah. Hughes mm-hmm. and Jonathan Balin. And they talk about blocked care in that book. They talk about it in a couple other books, okay. but that's where I first heard about it. And I'm reading it and I'm having these aha moments. And mm. I call Lisa and I'm like, it has a name. Like, this is what we've been coming up against. Mm-hmm. And I, it was just so clear that the adoptive community needed really p- practical resources. Yeah. Uh, Balin and Hughes kind of give like the broad picture anecdote. Okay. Mm-hmm. of what parents need and you know like when you're really tired and exhausted you kind of need like a step-by-step like yeah practically what does this look like what do I and do so, yeah yeah and so that's kind of where this book came out of we've been teaching about it and speaking about it for mm-hmm. a couple years now and about a year ago we're like oh this we probably need a book <laughs> this probably mm-hmm. needs to be a book and yeah. um so here we are. I know. Crazy. Yeah. So, so how do we then recognize within ourselves that that's where we're at as a caregiver? I mean, I think just any, any, it's really great for anyone who feels discouraged, right? Okay. Like yeah. blocked care isn't a clinical diagnosis, right? Um, it's a specific, as I understand it, it's a specific type of compassion fatigue. 
Sure. Um, I don't think that they're entirely interchangeable. Um, but the bottom line is once we even start to feel discouraged, because I would say, I yeah. wish someone had helped me figure out how to take care of my nervous system long before I was ever deeply in block care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like it is going to be easier to prevent it and to kind of nip it in the bud. Yeah. Rather than dig yourself out of a big giant hole. Yeah. And so I would say if you're a parent, pick the book up. Um, if, especially if you're an adoptive parent, because I think yeah. the prevalence in adoptive families is so much higher because the risk factors mm -hmm. are just more, are higher yeah. and find out what you should be looking for. And the whole third part is how to care for your nervous system well okay. in a way yeah. that helps prevent and overcome blocked care. And sure. so I think figure those things out uh, early, even mm -hmm. before you have kids perhaps like mm -hmm. i wish someone had told me about what i would look like in stress in really high stress parenting situations the enneagram um would have been really helpful it, mm -hmm. it tells me like it's pretty predictive of what how i'm going to yeah. behave and it's not pretty and the nervous system care you know one of the things we use a lot i mentioned it earlier is the safe and mm -hmm. sound protocol yeah and that's all about really good nervous system care, really good grounding for us as parents so that we can remain in what polyvagal theory calls ventral vagal, like open, social, safe engagement, even when our kids are closed off to us for whatever reason, you know, special needs, attachment disorder, yeah. whatever the thing is. And that's really kind of like, the secret, right? How can we care for our nervous systems in such a way that we're so strongly anchored in felt safety, yeah, in that openness, open state of our nervous system that we can remain there even when our kids are flipping their lids? Because, yeah. you know, mirror neurons say that when like our nervous system, like when our nervous system is around other people's nervous systems that are dysregulated, ours wants to follow suit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Unless we are really intentional about mm -hmm. like anchoring down into that. Okay. I can stay safe. I can be safe. I can be the anchor even in this crazy storm of big emotions that's swirling around me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned polyvagal theory and some of our listeners may not know what that is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So polyvagal theory um, is the brainchild of Dr. Stephen Porges. Mm -hmm. So if you've never read any of his stuff, again, another like I mean, I add them up there to like the Bruce Perry's and the right. Dan Siegel's and all of those um, just people who have told us so much about the nervous system. And basically what he did is map out biologically what happens when we have a stress response. And so some of this language is common. We have kind of common vernacular now around things like fight, flight, and freeze. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he took it one step further and really thought, like how what what is actually happening in the nervous system what yeah. does that mean and so he identified the vagal nerve which is the biggest uh nerve in the body and it goes to the most places and figured out that that nerve is in charge of carrying data around the stress response and it's mm. bi-directional which means that it can create changes in our body to help us respond to stress so like you know, increase in adrenaline, uh, increase in heart rate, increase in respiration. If we're getting ready to 
activate against a stress mm -hmm. response. And the same, but it, but it also means that if we find our heart rate, our heart is racing and we realize, oh, the threat is over now, or it really isn't a threat. We can mm -hmm. do some things intentionally like deep breathing to, mm -hmm. or musical things to slow our respiration, slow our heart rate, which then tells our nervous system, oh, wait, I know you're thinking that we're in stress right now. Guess what? We actually aren't. We can, yeah. you know, calm down, slow, slow that bodily reaction. But I think what's so fascinating is he gave us the scientific connection to some things that we were already observing. Like we see that kids from hard places, so kids with early adversity, kids who have changed primary caregivers, kids who come to their families through foster care and adoption, yeah, have a higher rate of like digestive issues. And so yeah. Yeah. polyvagal theory explains that like, oh, well, when your body goes into a stress response, it takes resources away from our digestive system. It disrupts mm -hmm. this regulatory thing in our body. And we also know that because of those early childhood experiences or, or prolonged childhood experiences, that the nervous system is more likely to think it's in stress, even when it's not. And mm -hmm. so this biological thing that's happening when we respond to stress is really happening in our entire body. Right. And when we think about that happening again and again, kind of chronically in a body, mm -hmm. then we start to understand why things like ACE, you know, things like the adverse childhood experience study, yeah. how like it makes sense that people who have had chronic stress in their childhood, then later in life have all these chronic health problems, right? Yep. Because we polyvagal theory tells us that we are disrupting all the regulatory systems mm -hmm. in the body every time we think we're in stress. Right. Yeah. So where does the safe and sound protocol come into that? So the, the vagal nerve goes to a bunch of different places and manages a bunch of different things, including our sensory integration system. Okay. And so a lot of your folks will probably be familiar with sensory processing disorder. Yep. A lot of us have kids Absolutely. who COTs, <laughs> right? You know, yep. we all know about deep squeezes and chewing yep. gum and hard work and repetitive, you know, all those things. Yeah. And it turns out that sound is one of the primary points of data that our nervous system is using to decide are we safe or not safe. Hmm. And we kind of know this intuitively because if you think about how Hollywood uses music, like mm -hmm. we know that certain music tells us that could be scary or suspenseful. Yeah. We know that certain music sounds happy. Yeah. Uh, we use different voice intonation for different mm -hmm. things. We talk to babies differently than when we're angry at a teenager or yeah. angry at our dog. We talk to our dog differently when we mm -hmm. want them to get excited about something versus when they've just, you know, chewed through something valuable yeah. or whatever so we all kind of inherently have already adjusted to this interesting fact yeah that sound can communicate so much more than just you know what's going on at the surface mm -hmm. and dr porges figured out that the frequency of the human prosodic human voice and prosodic meaning like the voice that we use to show that we're friendly and safe okay. is our, that frequency it cues safety to the nervous system that that okay. that frequency inherently tells the nervous system 
everything's going to be okay. You're mm-hmm. fine. You're safe. Mm-hmm. And if we hyperexpose the eardrum to those sounds, then we can kind of retune the nervous system mm. um, to be more listening for those cues of safety. Um, I, I probably should have, I should back up just a little bit and say that part of polyvagal theory includes the fact that we all have a confirmation bias in our nervous system one okay. way or the other. So yeah. we kind of know like if there's a really safe situation that that can be safe and like a really dangerous situation that that can be dangerous, but we encounter so many neutral situations sure. in our life every single day. Mm-hmm. And everybody's nervous system is going to assume okay we're probably fine mm-hmm. you know without really clear data or watch out for danger yeah yeah or right? the opposite yeah or the opposite right mm-hmm. and so i i tell the story in our book um one a couple of summers ago i did like the worst parenting thing i like literally forgot about one of my kids like i was supposed <laughs> to pick him up from a friend's that's house that's amazing i love that I for you <laughs> i know and it was like late at night and i like even when he asked i was like gosh it's a little past my bedtime i guess i can probably mm-hmm. stay up and go get him he was a teenager so it wasn't like i forgot like a two-year-old but sure <laughs> um you know i like i i just literally forgot to like yeah. 45 minutes after i was supposed to pick him up he called oh, and he's no. like um ma and i was like oh gosh 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 so sorry <laughs> coming, you know, like, I mean, legit forgot about him. Right. And because he's one of our kids who has felt Mm -hmm. safety, even that, which, you know, could have been a cue to a kid of like, you know, my mom doesn't love me. She like Mm -hmm. legit forgot about me. He was like, yeah, no big deal. Like, it's fine. I could have just spent the night. Like he he just, he has his confirmation biases. He'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that our relationship is good and safe and steady. And that, that data point is, does not constitute, you know, how I feel right. about him. Yeah. Me forgetting him does not. Thankfully. Um, <laughs> gratefully, right. Um, on the other hand, right, one of our daughters who does not, has not had, you know, safe attachment throughout her developmental years. She's one of our kids who came to us through adoption later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a situation where we had to cancel a visit. Uh, she lives out of state. Uh, she's legally an adult, right? She was planning to visit home and it was in the age of covid before vaccines before Mm -hmm. we like knew a lot before the world had really opened up and our entire family which was at the time like i don't know nine or ten people who are living Mm -hmm. in our house like had all been closely exposed to covid Mm -hmm. and she works in healthcare and so we had to call her and say like you know we're not going to tell you what to do you're an adult but you know here's here's what's happening And, and so she ended up having to cancel her visit and we all know that that's not like that was not a fail on my part, right? Like yeah. that was just, that was kind of an, it was disappointing for sure, but it was, yeah. no one really had control over that. And that sent her into a, an attachment tailspin. Aww. Like it, we were hearing things like, I knew you didn't want me to come home. I knew Aww. you didn't love me. Yeah. I don't, I realized I don't really need a family. Like I'm fine on Shoot. my own, you know, yeah. like, and so that's the difference between, is my confirmation bias telling me that the world's safe or is my yeah. confirmation bias telling me that there's danger literally around every corner everywhere yeah everywhere and so um when you already think there's danger everywhere you're also listening for sounds of danger so even if you're getting some sounds of safety even if some people talk to you with this kind Mm -hmm. prosodic voice you're kind of dismissing it and you're like oh yeah but do you hear that like deep Mm -hmm. dangerous sound over there um Mm -hmm. and so even like kids sitting in classrooms with hvac systems this 
low rumbling like that low frequency is a sound of danger um, oh interesting think, like low frequency music yeah. in, in movies is dangerous uh-huh. and so you have these kids who are already assuming that the world's dangerous and then they're sitting in a environment where they literally are hearing those sounds all day long mm-hmm. and their nervous system is cued to pay attention to them no like kids who are feeling safe are not paying attention to the sounds right sure, the yeah. eardrums totally doing different things so the safe and sound protocol literally changes the 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 strength of the muscle of the eardrum and how okay. it filters and listens for sounds um so that a nervous system can start getting regrounded in that felt safety that is so interesting i love how you explain that too um because i know very little about safe and sound protocol um just kind of like scr- started to scratch the surface on it and you just explained it in such a beautiful way and it makes so much sense can the safe and sound protocol be used to combat compassion fatigue? Yeah, I think it can. Okay. And the reason why is if we think about what happens in specifically blocked care is that mm-hmm. our nervous system is so overwhelmed that it starts to become very self-protective. It starts to shut down mm-hmm. and it can shut down to a particular relationship or sometimes it, it literally isolates and shuts down from it becomes very cynical about mm-hmm. relationship, right? And about what could be harmful and where danger lies. And, um, and so, you know, it's like going to bed every night and saying, I'm gonna try harder mm-hmm. <laughs> tomorrow to show up better for my people yeah. and love yeah. my kids more. And yet we find ourselves quote unquote failing every mm-hmm. day. And so it's, it's not something we can really will ourselves out of because it's, mm-hmm. it's an instinctual protective mechanism. And yet as attachment figures to kids, we know that yeah. we have to be available to offer this attachment relationship. And so what the safe and sound protocol does is allow us to feel safety in more places. And mm-hmm. it also, one of the things that we automatically do in our nervous system when we feel safe is open up to relationship because we Mm -hmm. are built for a relationship like we are built like it's why solitary confinement is such a terrible form of punishment right like it just goes to show that like human beings were meant to be in community with each other Mm -hmm. and the safe and sound protocol allows the nervous system to feel brave enough safe enough to enter into those relationships and be more resilient towards relationship stress overall, um, stay more regulated. You know, like I was talking before, like the key to kind of overcoming block care is being able to stay anchored in your yeah. own sense of felt safety, even when there's chaos breaking yeah. around you. Yeah. And, and so I think that anytime we can help the nervous system, whether it's safe and sound or another type of nervous system care or another body-based therapy, like anytime we can help ourselves stay more deeply rooted in our own sense of um, the ability to come back to safety, right? The thing is, is we don't want to stay here for all the time. Like if there's a bear in the forest, like we need to react. If a kid's going to hit us, like we need to protect ourselves. So we don't want to turn it off, but we want to be able to recover once the threat is gone yeah 
which is like PTSD and compassion. Yeah. Like that's basically what happens is we're like, we kind of stay stuck in that yeah. defensive feeling like, oh, well, you know, this kid's hurt me before. So yeah. I'm pretty sure they're going to hurt me again. And so every rea- every interaction we come into, we start coming in already kind of closed off and yeah. protective when what we want to do is can we can each day, each interaction kind of be a new day and not I want to be careful. I not in a way that invites like repeat abuse or puts ourselves sure. in danger, right? We we have to have boundaries. We have to kind of yeah. look at the data and figure out what is the best thing for our families. What kind of what level of care do my kids need? What level of care do I need? Um, but sometimes block care can keep us from noticing the bids for connection that our kids are having yeah. tangled up in that mix of. Yep this regulation and we tend to only that confirmation bias kicks in we tend to only see we tend to say things my kid never wants to connect with yeah yeah right and that's Mm -hmm. almost never true Mm -hmm. yeah but we're so that's what they're trying to do yeah we're so conditioned to protect ourselves from the behaviors that tend to push us away that we miss the so we we get really sensitive to the push behaviors and we kind of miss the pull behaviors yeah where are they trying to be connected how can we be curious about the need behind the behavior, um, yeah. those types of things. Would you say the safe and sound protocol is best for the caregivers or for the children, or it really doesn't matter? When we provide it to families, we require the caregiver who's going to facilitate it with the child to do it. Okay. For a couple reasons. One, by the time most families come to us, there's at least a hint of blocked care, if not full-blown blocked care. Sure. Or parents' nervous systems are just shot. I mean, take away the specific cases, like circumstances of any case, and we all have COVID that we're coming off of, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's that as like our baseline. And then there's like whatever happens on top of that. And Mm -hmm. so what I tell parents is I want their, because the safe and sound protocol is what we call a co-regulating activity. So it's like, it's not magic. We can't just, you know, plop on headphones and throw it at our kids and like not change anything and like assume that it's all going to make everything better. Right. It's like an additional tool to the tool belt of Mm -hmm. what I tell parents is we want to give cues of safety Mm -hmm. to your kid's nervous system in as many ways as possible. And safe and sound is a really strong cue. It's a really loud cue of safety, but if it's being drowned out by, um, cues that are kind of going against it mm-hmm. in other ways, like in how we parent and what's happening at school and all of those things, then it really has minimal effect. So it's a so it's a co-regulating activity. It's the most impactful when a parent can enter into a listening session, present with their child, able to do some kind of act, connecting activity while mm-hmm. the child's listening. And so we want that facilitator like the caregiver's nervous system to be as healthy and as open Mm -hmm. as possible and i don't know a better way to do that than to have the adults go through the safe and sound protocol first um it also i think creates a little bit of um curiosity with the kids like oh this is something special mommy's doing right now you know i'm i'm just caring for my nervous system it gives them a chance to experience it in case their kids have questions um Mm -hmm. you know i just think we lead best by example. So there's yeah, for well, sure. lots of reasons we do it that way, but those are 
those are the highlights. Yeah. Yeah. So how would someone go about finding a safe and sound protocol practitioner? Like is, can you do it virtually or does it have to be in person? So we do it virtually. Um, okay. It can be done in person. Every family is a little bit different. Um, the We've kind of perfected the way that we work with clients and every safe and sound practitioner has a slightly different way or okay. way that they support families through it because it's, it's a tool, right? It's not the one only thing. So it, it usually comes with some other, you know, sometimes OTs do it with OT okay. and sometimes uh, it goes with talk therapy, like with a therapist. Um, mm -hmm. So we do it with coaching okay, and community. So we have a coaching and support community for adoptive families where we're providing a lot of education that's based in felt safety and brain-based language for how can they reclaim compassion for themselves and learn yeah. to care for their own nervous systems? How can they reclaim compassion for their kids, learn about their kids' nervous systems and how they can support that? And then if they want to add safe and sound in as a layer to that, they can do that. Okay. Uh, so we work with families all over the world. So they can certainly uh, go to reclaimcompassion.com and okay. join that community there. And then once you're inside, you can kind of get more information about awesome. how to use safe and sound within that container. Um, yeah. you can go to integratedlistening.com and okay. there's a provider list there. I would say if you're an adoptive family and you're, uh, looking to use this, especially if you're looking to use it with your children, just make sure that the practitioner has experience in, um, childhood trauma and yeah. adoptive families because safe and sound now has all of these implications and applications mm -hmm. and it's being used for so, so many. many other things mm -hmm. like some people uh specialize in like pain management and other things and okay. so you don't mm -hmm. want to like go to a practitioner who specializes in pain ma management and doesn't often work with families and then because you're not going to get the yeah the container that you need to make it the most sure. effective yeah. um yeah and make sure that you're working with someone who so uh, way back when, when it was first introduced, it was a five hour protocol that we did over five days. It was very like stringent and prescribed. And okay. we found that that was a really big ask for the nervous okay. system in terms of shifting and changing. And so you also want to make sure you're working with someone who's doing, uh, a pretty comprehensive pre-assessment offers okay. a post-assessment. So you can really see where the change is because oh, yeah. sometimes the changes in the nervous system are not don't come out behaviorally in the ways that we're looking for them. Yeah. And there's so many things that the vagal nerve controls in our body that without assessments, it's like when your kids grow and you don't know until you get yeah. them to close out, right? Like without a really good assessment, you're like, did that work? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it worked in ways that you weren't looking for it until the assessment shows you and you're like, oh, oh. yeah, now that you mention it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so find a practitioner that does good assessments and that um, who will work with you to deliver the protocol at a speed uh, and pace that honors everyone's nervous system in your family. So we do individualized protocols for every okay. single person that we have okay. to do it, both parents and ch children. Awesome. That is so helpful. Um, and I feel like I learned so much from you already. So yay. I actually have two more questions before we wrap it up. Sure. And so the first one, I'm kind of switching gears a little bit with this question. And it's because I know you're an, an adoptee. Um, I am a parent coach and I run into this a lot with adoptive families that I work with 
more often than I thought I would, which is that the families haven't told their child that they're adopted. So they call me in to help them do that. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, what your thoughts are on that and what advice you would give to adoptive parents. It's such a good question. And it always boggles my mind when families, you know, I think we have this certain image of, okay, maybe in the twenties or the thirties or the fifties, even maybe more people were doing that. Um, I'm a transracial adoptee, so it would have been a lot harder for my parents to keep that a secret. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which I would like to think that they wouldn't have, even if it had been an option, Mm -hmm. they were very open with us. We talked about our adoption story at a minimum every year when we had our, we called it airplane day because we came in on an airplane. Sure. But what I would say is our bodies know that something has happened, Mm -hmm. right? And and this is coming from someone, I was a very well-adjusted quote unquote, happy adoptee. Like Mm -hmm. I did not go through my childhood feeling like I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that in hindsight was probably because my best friend was also a Korean adoptee. And that was a a blessing that I think we took for granted for years and years. Like lately Mm -hmm. we've been looking at each other going like, man, I think we like, I think we circumvented like years of therapy because we had each other to normalize. (laughs) Sure. Yes. Uh Uh, But I would say, I think Jane Schooler in one of her books about how to tell tell your child their story talks about like, even if they don't have words for it, like they Mm -hmm. were there, like adoptees have, have lived through their entire story. And so if they're hearing a narrative that doesn't match kind of Mm -hmm. what inherently they sense to be true, they're, you're already at a disadvantage. Like you're already creating so much room for, um, I think more mental health struggles for identity issues, because there's the sense there can be the sense of I, something's not right. And there's no way to pin it to something. Right. You're like, but none of the data matches. And so that can be very disorienting for a person. Um, I, I think separate from adoption, I just, I happen to be a person that just incredibly values like honesty and trust. Mm -hmm. And I know this is one of those things where like, well, dumb, Alyssa, everyone does. Well, actually not everyone (laughs) as it turns out, right? Like it's a, it's, it's a cultural thing. Like some cultures don't, you know, um, manipulating the truth is very cunning, right. And very helpful in a lot of cultures. But I just think when we came into parenthood, we wanted to be, incredibly honest with Mm -hmm. our kids and part of that was because we wanted them to be incredibly honest back to us and Mm -hmm. so i mean we took it to the extreme like we will talk about literally anything in our house probably to the point where some of our kids wish we would there were topics that were (laughs) off limits right yeah uh we were really careful about what we even said about imaginary things right like uh around different holidays you know we we have fun with it and we do you know we can put the tooth under the pillow and we can yeah sit sit on Santa's lap and take the pictures and yet we never went out of our way to weave this story that you know we would have to unweave (laughs) at some point when they were like huh does that really happen right we just yeah and even um hard things like I think sometimes 
parents have a tendency like, oh, we're not going to tell them that thing, or we're not going to, um, we're not going to take them to the funeral when they're three or the mm-hmm. viewing, like that might mm-hmm. be upsetting. And we have just for better, or for worse, like just hit straight in with all mm-hmm. of that. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's because I am an adoptee and I, and I needed to know all the things, yeah. you know, to make sense of my story or if it, it comes from some other motivation, but um now that we have kids who are all teens and young adults it seems like that has been a way that has worked out for us and how we now have relationship with yeah. our kids because there's trust there there's a lot of trust we're, we're yeah we're hoping that we've built a lot of trust and that they can come to us even with really hard things yeah um, and i think ultimately that's what parents do want um, I mm-hmm. hear from a lot of adoptive parents, right? Like, I wish my kid would just talk to me about what was so hard. I just wish that they would open up. How can I get them right? And so I think we can't have that thing, yeah, that desire, and also um, be keeping secrets about our kids' stories. And I, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of families maybe be checking out, like, oh, well, my kid definitely knows they're adopted. We haven't been. But I think we keep secrets about the stories, even if, like, yeah, my kid knows they're adopted, but what do they know about their birth right. family? Yep. What do yep. they know about why you adopted? Well, I mean, there's so many things, right? That yeah, we can so talk many about. layers. Yep. Yeah, that's that's really good. I think it is good to just hear from your perspective because I can come in as the professional and as like a fellow adoptive mom and say, here's why we need to be doing, you know, here's why we need to be honest from day one. And your child deserves to know their story, but to hear it from somebody who is on the other side, I think is holds more weight. And so I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to be having time with you and not ask you about that because I think that's really important for people to understand. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Well, can I add one more thing? Yeah. So my parents were nothing but honest with our story and it also came with a perspective right? Mm-hmm. And there are things about just the big practice of what happened politically in international adoption that I'm exploring now in my 40s. Okay. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with the trust that I had that I have with my parents. Uh-huh. And there's these alternative, there's other perspectives that are impacting what I see about truth and adoption yeah. that I'm wrestling with now. Mm. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. And that's with having as honest mm. a picture as I could have mm-hmm. of the factual parts of mm. how my adoption story came to be. Yeah. And so what I can't imagine is what I know is that adoptees that don't have as much as they could have coming into this are at such a deficit. Like, because I had as much of my story and as much honesty with my parents, I can now wrestle into these much deeper waters mm-hmm. that are impacting my own self-awareness and my own journey and my own ability to have attachment with people now and yeah. my understanding of adoption and my little itty by my new role, right? Mm-hmm. In a much bigger thing. And I'm being able to wrestle, like it's like coming up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like yeah. I'm able yeah. to wrestle with much bigger parts of what adoption is and what it means and my identity. Yeah. And that was starting with all the facts yeah. that I yeah. could have for my parents. And so 
I think we're doing a disservice to adoptees if we're not like imagine if I had to also process the fact that I even was sure. adopted adopted yeah. I might never get to also wrestle with some of the bigger issues of adoption because I would be way back here trying yeah. to wrestle with the adoption itself that's good. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Last question. I like to ask my guests what three resources you would recommend to families who are either just starting their journey of healing. If they're realizing like, oh my gosh, we are deep in this ocean drowning, or maybe they're already like down the path, but feeling like they're the wheel just keeps spinning and the things that they've been trying are no longer working. So uh, I think a book that all of humanity should read is What Happened to You by Bruce Perry and Oprah So Winfrey. good. Oh my so gosh. So good. And it, it it doesn't matter if you're an adoptive family, you're not an adoptive family, yeah. you think you have trauma, you don't. It's just really good, like, yeah. human stuff. Yeah. Um, other podcasts, I'm a friend of Robin Goebbels and a mm. huge fan of her work. Yeah. And so if you're Same. looking <laughs> to get, like, a deeper, like, understanding of the brain and how it works and just a really compassionate way to view human beings yeah um, then her podcast I think it's called parenting after trauma yep um is just a phenomenal resource okay. and I know we already talked about it but if you have a little bit of space and time and you can do Enneagram work this isn't like take a test and know your number this is like work with a coach, get in a group, mm -hmm. like really do some deep spiritual and personal work having to do with the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. I think you will be a better human and a more enriched, have a more enriched life. Yeah. Life. And it's just one awesome. of my most favorite um, places that again is good for everyone. And I think mm -hmm. especially helpful in these spaces where we're adding extra layers of tricky to all of our relationships. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I could keep talking to you for all day long about all the things because I just feel like I could pick your brain about so many different things and you have so much wisdom. And I think because you wear so many hats, I'm like, okay, but what about this? But <laughs> I will contain myself and not do that. So I just appreciate all that you shared with us today and I appreciate your time and have a great day. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Gosh, I hope you guys walked away with so much knowledge and information that you didn't have before. And if anything, encouragement. I did put in the show notes all of the different books and resources that Melissa mentioned because I know it was a lot, but it's all good stuff. So check out the show notes and you can find all the links there. I also want to mention that I have had a chance to read her new book. And can I just tell you that although it is written for adoptive families, it is not just for adoptive families. So please, if you have not adopted, but you are raising some hard kids, go get a copy of the book. You will not regret it. Okay, everyone, as always, if you could subscribe, share with a friend and give me a five-star review, that would be so great and so helpful for me. I look forward to next week. I'm so excited that you found this podcast. And I hope you join me every week as you go through your own journey towards healing. One thing I truly believe in is that trauma awareness is so important to our future generations. And it starts with you.